Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, Republicans block an effort to investigate the attack on the U.S. Capitol. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? A conservative Supreme Court agrees to hear a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. It is absolutely a challenge that goes straight to the heart of Roe and uh, in doing so threatens to overturn 50 years of precedent. But if you already have kids, the government wants to give you free money just for having children. You will get deposited in your bank account $250 per child each month. Plus, citizen Trump faces potential jail time. And has any progress been made on the homeless crisis? Those stories coming up. But first, the United States Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. Now with a conservative supermajority on the court, 6-3, to three, there seem to be enough votes to overturn 50 years of president on the court. Joining me now is Josh Gerstein. He's a reporter for Politico. And this has been something that conservatives have been challenging so many times before, but the big difference this time is the makeup of that court, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've now gotten to the point where we have a 6-3 conservative majority, six justices appointed by Republican presidents. So there's just little doubt that now any case on abortion rights is going to be um, you know, a, a greater opportunity for anti-abortion forces to score a victory. Now, whether it means that they can completely knock out uh, Roe versus Wade or whether it's going to be a more uh, limited uh, sort of tactical strike against Roe versus Wade, I think remains a bit of an open question, despite that 6-3 majority. In addition to that, you also have the newest justice on the court in Amy Coney Barrett, who has sort of made a career of bucking trends. In fact, she was noted for her opposition to stare decisis, deferring to previous decisions on the court. Uh, a lot of conservatives read that as she's she's a solid vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, so a lot of people think that. Uh, you know, it's hard to say until it actually comes through. She's um, known as sort of a, a Catholic legal scholar as well, uh, comes out of, I believe, Notre Dame uh, University. So that's another uh, factor at play here. Uh, so there's no question that uh, I think if people were looking at like which justices might be most suspect of uh, abortion rights and abortion rights jurisprudence, uh, that she would be right at the top of that list. Um, but again, you have to keep doing the head counting. And, you know, Justice Barrett um, is not alone necessarily going to be able to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade or major portions of abortion law. Um, in fact, you know, even if she were to, si uh, to side with um, other uh, conservative justices, uh, you know, there's still the possibility that, say, Chief Justice John Roberts, who has uh, been, uh, you might say, a bit wobbly, uh, something of a swing justice on some issues, uh, might conceivably join with liberals. And then, you know, what would Brett Kavanaugh do, another uh, conservative justice who at times has looked for sort of what he would I think, regard as middle road solutions on um, issues of abortion and is, I think, not um, tried to shy away a bit more from uh, the most polarizing views on that topic. He mentioned Chief Justice John Roberts. He himself is a Catholic, but he's also an institutionalist. He's worried that the court has been losing legitimacy by being too far outside public opinion. 
And Roe versus Wade is popular in the United States. And if the justices were to strike down Roe versus Wade and eliminate abortion rights, wouldn't the court risk losing that legitimacy even more? Right. So he he tends to not like um, extreme changes in the law unless there's some good reason to justify them. You know, we, we had a case just last year uh, where Roberts uh, actually sided with uh, abortion rights uh, advocates, uh, and he could have uh, swung the decision in a conservative direction and really made a dramatic change on abortion law. Uh, but he, uh, you know, voted. This was one in 2020 on a law out of uh, Louisiana about sort of regulations and restrictions put on doctors and the circumstances under which people could get abortions. And he basically said, "Look." Um, the Supreme Court ruled on a basically identical law in 2016 that it was unconstitutional. That was a different makeup of the Supreme Court. Obviously, they're at the tail end um, of the uh, Obama administration. Uh, but he said, look, this law is basically the same. And so the result here is going to be the same. Now, that was in June of 2020. Um, that was before uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett uh, came to the court. Um, and so you know, uh, the, that kind of a decision might come out differently next time. But obviously, in the past, there have been at least some instances where Roberts, even on abortion, uh, has said, you know, let's take a, a slower kind of approach. Uh, and we're going to respect uh, we're going to respect precedent in a way that leads to the law to change more more slowly over time. And you know, we've been talking about this being a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, but what is the law that they're actually considering here? So uh, it's a Mississippi law that uh, basically uh, outlaws uh, abortions uh, after 15 weeks of uh, pregnancy. And under the Roe v. Wade framework, basically uh, the, the whole uh, trimester is basically supposed to be uh, off limits. And there, there are questions about uh, whether, uh, you know, abortions, uh, regulations such as that, um, whether there's an appropriate role for the state to regulate uh, early abortion or not. Roe v. Wade basically said, no, there's, there's no role for the state to regulate uh, abortion prior to the point of viability of the fetus. And, uh, you know, in the sort of middle trimester, there could be a little more regulation. And in the third trimester, there could be a lot more regulation. And, and this is sort of trying to draw those lines and figure out if there are some circumstances where a, a fetus that's not yet viable and the state could make it uh, difficult or impossible for a woman to get an abortion. So and the big thing is if, and, and this is a big if, the court strikes down Roe versus Wade, it would ultimately go back to the states and each state would ultimately decide. But there's also talk on Capitol Hill. Couldn't Congress step in and basically say this is a right and you states you cannot regulate it? They could certainly try to do that. Uh, that is something that's been discussed. Um, the, the answer there is pretty complicated, right? I mean, you'd have to pass a bill saying that uh, under the current uh, configuration of the U.S. Senate legislation in most instances needs 60 votes to pass, uh, except for budget matters. Abortion doesn't really seem like a budget matter, uh, although maybe it could be, um, you know, sort of forced into that particular cubbyhole if they needed to. Uh, so so you then get wrapped up in questions about would, would you repeal a filibuster and what would the implications of that be? Um, you're correct that there there probably could be a majority in the House I think the question in the Senate is less 
less clear. And, you know, we expect a decision in this Mississippi case, um, probably close to the 2022 election. So you can't even really be sure who would be in control of the Senate since it's a razor thin 50-50 margin right at the moment. All right, Josh Gerstein, reporter with Politico. Thank you so much for your insights. Okay, Jeff, take care. Still to come, the federal government is going to pay you cash just for having kids when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The Treasury Department says 39 million families are set to receive monthly child payments beginning on July 15th. They're part of President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. Families could be seeing up to $300 a month for each child. This is a lot of money that's going out to a lot of families. Joining me now, ABC's Faith Abube from Washington, D.C. And uh, this seems rather unusual. I've never seen, at least in my studies of history, payments for having children. (laughs) Well, a lot of families uh, are looking forward to that money. And the Biden administration uh, has been pitching this as something that could lift a lot of children out of poverty. And uh, right now, according to the administration, 88% of children across the country will be able to benefit from this provision that was added to that coronavirus relief package we saw passed earlier uh, this year uh, when the Biden administration first took office. And remember, there was a huge fight over this COVID-19 relief package because uh, of the price tag, $1.9 trillion. No Republicans supported it. And now we're seeing some of these provisions come to light. And so the money, the checks will start going out July 15th. And after that, it will go out the 15th of every month, unless the 15th happens to fall on a holiday or the weekend, then that date will change slightly uh, based on uh, which day is closer to the um, that 15th of that month. Now, the tax credit is already something that was on the books already. It, uh, this is just an expanded version of what was already law here um, in the U.S., but it was capped at $2,000 for families, and families could only get that money uh, once they filed their, their taxes, and they would get get a credit on that based on um, how much they make and how many kids they have in the household. But what's changed with this new new um, expanded version of this tax credit is the fact that it increases the amount that you get a year for having kids. And it also adds more pa- parents to this pool of eligibility and allows parents to actually get monthly tax in their bank accounts instead of having to wait to file their taxes at the end of the year to get this credit. So your question probably is how much money is going to these families. Uh, If you have children, you can expect up to $3,000 per child or $3,600 for each child under the age of six for the year 2021. Of course, there are income restrictions and the money phases out, but for qualified families, that makes about up to $300 per month for each child that you have that's under the age of six years old. If you have kids that are between ages six and 17, you can expect up to $250 dollars a month. Again, that phases out depending on how much you make. But uh, the money will come in the form of checks if you have direct deposit information on file with the IRS, or it can be mailed to you um, to your home address. But for families that were not eligible in the past, as, as I was explaining, if, in the past, with the regular child tax credit, if you were too poor to file your taxes at the end of the year, you wouldn't get any money. Well, this allows the poorest of the poorest parents to also get money. All they have to do is go to the IRS website, enter their income information, and they will be able to be eligible as well. But most households don't really have to do anything in order to start seeing this money. So this being part of the expanded child tax credit, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's almost in advance to what people would get when they file their taxes. Is that correct? That is correct. So you're getting it 
on the front end instead of having to wait to the end of the year when you file your taxes to get that credit as a lump sum. And instead, you're getting a monthly check. Um, and of course, the Biden administration is hoping to actually extend it beyond just that one year. This was a, only passed as a one-year deal, but the Biden administration wants to expand it through Congress and extending it through 2025. Uh, they're saying that, uh, and also some of the analysts have also backed this up, they're saying that these expanded child tax credits will lift half the children who are in poverty right now in the U.S. out of poverty. And of course, it will cost a lot of money. Some analysts have said it will cost roughly a hundred billion dollars a year. And so how is that going to be paid for? Well, so the, the first part, the one year deal that, that, that we're uh, getting ready to activate right now, of course, was already passed in that COVID relief package, um, that $1.9 trillion that was already added to the deficit. But going forward, um, this is that the proposal that the Biden administration is putting forth in order to extend it would be part of the $1.8 trillion families plan that the Biden administration is discussing right now. Uh, it hasn't started to be discussed on Capitol Hill just yet, but as you've heard the president say over and over again, he wants to roll back some of the tax cuts that were given to wealthy people under um, President former President Trump. He also is looking at several different things, but of course there's going to be a fight over this because you're talking about a new plan that costs $1.8 trillion, no matter what you call it. It's a, a lot of spending for this country in just a short amount of time. And there's going to be a fight between Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill as they discuss what's going to happen moving forward. You mentioned that this is expected to bring a lot of people out of poverty, according to economists and some analysts that you guys have talked to. Uh, is it also expected to help the economy or are people expected to, like we've seen with many stimulus programs in the past, just put that money away and save it? Well, if you speak with the Biden administration, they will tell you that this is all part of helping the economy as well. If you lift people out of poverty, they have more money to spend uh, and they have more flexibility to do a lot of things. But they're mostly focusing on the child poverty. Uh, this pandemic has affected a lot of families in a very, very negative way and um, just hit their pockets really hard. So that that is the way they're selling this as something that's going to help these kids who have been struggling to eat, these families who have been struggling to feed their families. And, uh, of course, the income um, thresholds are, uh, are as high as um, $150,000 for couples uh, and $75,000 for individual um, parents. And, and, of course, the first checks are expected to start going out on July 15th. And, again, this is only for a one-year period. The Biden administration wants this extended to 2025. All right, ABC's Faith Abube from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When we come back, Millie Millions have already been spent, but what progress has been made on the homeless crisis, if any, when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogla, and the new regional homeless authority. It's been three years in the making, spent a lot of money, hasn't really done anything so far. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich. And uh, so where do things stand with this? Because I remember when this thing first launched, we were talking about it, and the criticism, at least from the political analysis side of it, was that it was political cover for the elected officials in King County and the city of Seattle. But so far, this this big effort hasn't done anything. Well, it's a big effort, just a name right now, because it's a small effort in terms of staff. On uh, Thursday, the RHA's governing board gave its first approval for its the RHA's first ever administrative budget of $2.3 million to start hiring people for the remainder of this year. 
and then it's going to be estimated maybe $6 million in estimated administrative costs for 2022. But it's not until 2022, maybe even the spring of 2022, when the RHA starts assuming all the contracts, the 23 contracts now in effect for homeless service providers in the city of Seattle and King County. And it starts administrating those contracts and starts taking over the operations of everything that's homelessness in, in, in the region. And that would be shelters, cleaning out camps, that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the provider aspects. The real telling part, and this is what I have been waiting for in a way, I've been covering this for a couple of years now, is when will the RHA and its CEO, Mark Dones, start making those critical decisions on what's most important? That is the idea behind the RHA, is to look at the big picture, say, you know what, this is what's going on in Bellevue, this is what's going on in Seattle, we're going to have a sub-regional approach, they call it now, for the smaller cities. They're kind of giving some grace to the smaller cities who have complained, well, we don't want to be Seattle, uh, everything Seattle's going to get everything. So what we're going to wait for is when will Mark Dones and the RHA start deciding the priorities of everything? And we don't know when that's going to be. This week, uh, Challenge Seattle, which is a group of 21 executives of the, of the 21 largest employers in the region, they call themselves Challenge Seattle. The CEO is former Governor Chris Gregoire. They just funded and put out a report about what's the highest priority for homelessness in our region. And this report points to chronic homelessness as the number one issue that needs to be addressed right away. As if nobody knew that already. Well, they're narrowing it down. You know, chronic homelessness, they they identify that in in King County, 73% of people who are chronically said to be chronically homeless have behavioral or emotional conditions, Mm -hmm. whereas opposed to only 4% of the county population has that. 64% of the chronically homeless have a substance abuse disorder, whereas only 5% of the county's population has that. So it's obviously very disproportionate. So you need to address that. And they're chronically homeless, so they need a place to stay. Those are the most expensive, highest priority group within the homeless that the these CEOs of the, that Challenge Seattle has identified that need to be addressed right away. And cities like Bakersfield and, and San Diego have done that when it, op, operation. They're pointing to those two cities as maybe these models to follow. And so they're making those recommendations right now to this very new regional homeless authority, you know, that, which is not even at a point to decide what's the priority yet. They're just trying to see who's going to be sitting in that chair. Again, do I mean, this? And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm, I'm going to sort of speak as maybe the, the layman listener here. We know homelessness is a problem. We know chronic homelessness is a problem. We know mental health is a problem. We know drug issues are a problem. Do we really need money to be spent on studies and, and, and researching and having this extra governmental body or this additional governmental body saying what we already know? Well, we know what the problem is. Do something about it. Well, the elected leaders that you, the public, have elected have decided this is what they're going to do. You know, another layer. Is it right or wrong? Um, That's for everybody else to decide. You know, I'm not going to give that opinion right now. That's not my job. Uh, I'll comment in a way, but I I think. um, Well, it all depends on results, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and you have, I think, this group, although they have no legal pull or have no authority to do anything. They're just a big group to sponsor a study like this and provide the information they've collected to the RHA. You know, how much influence will that have? It's almost like I asked, I asked Governor Gregoire, I think you're telling me stuff like you just said, you're telling me stuff I already know, 
we've been talking about this to nauseam for years now. So what's new about this? And she basically they came up with an economic argument on focusing on how if you don't handle the chronically homeless first, you lose a lot more on other things like tourism and you know, other kind of housing. You know these other other effects that that if you spend fifty thousand dollars on someone who's chronically homeless, you're going to get them into a place. You're going to get them off the street. That's good. Otherwise, if you don't spend fifty grand on that one person. That's going to cost you ninety-five thousand in like third degree of effects, you know. Court costs, you know, uh, tourism. Responding effects, to yeah. a medical call, the fire yeah. department, police department. So that's the that's the cost analysis, benefit analysis they put out in this report. So they're putting numbers to where why you should focus on this particular subgroup of the homelessness. They actually said the region's doing a pretty good job about handling homelessness for families. Uh, who have kids, you know, trying to get them into places. But it's that hardcore. People have been out there for mm-hmm. 10 years. You know, I've been talking to some of these people that they're actually afraid to be in an apartment because it has walls. You know, they, they, they don't know how to work a microwave. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they're at that fundamental level, some of these people. So they need what's called permanent supportive housing, which is on-call services in the place, mm-hmm. their own room, it's very expensive, but that's what's needed. And that's, that's I think, part of the other problem, too, is you see this in politics all the time. Upfront costs, which can be expensive, but political bodies tend to defer, oh, I'll spend more over the long run because I don't want to have to deal with this upfront capital that I have to pay. And I think what, what the public sees is they want to see results on the street. They haven't. I mean, you still have tents everywhere. You still have fires at homeless encampments every other week that we're covering. So the short-term result is, hey, you know what? Get them in a hotel room. They're off the street. The public doesn't see it. That scene gives the perception that something's working. But that's just temporary. I think what Challenge Seattle is saying, yeah, you could do that. You got to put the hardcore money into the hardcore chronic homelessness and behavioral services. You have to have. If you don't that. fix the root problem, it's yeah. just going to come back. That's right. I and mean, we've said that before. And then what comes down to it is, yeah, everything comes down to money, right? Yeah. Uh, I asked the governor, well, how much is this going to cost? You know, you're, you have six proposals here. We have thirty five hundred uh, chronically homeless on the streets. Well, how much is that going to cost to get them into behavioral health? And you know, no, there's no numbers for that. You know, they don't have a number for that, which makes it hard to budget and hard to plan. Well, and then you have the the perception: how many people are coming to Seattle? Because this is where the services are. Mm-hmm. You have other regional cities like Mercer Island, who's banning tents yeah. and making people go to a shelter in Bellevue if they haven't show up in a. If there has ever been a NIMBY argument for the homeless crisis, that's it. Because I remember playing that audio where the city council is just saying, you know what? We're going to ship you off to another jurisdiction. We're just going to get you out of our city. We're going to send people to places where they can get help. And if the people don't want to get help and say, I'm not going to any shelter, then then they have made a decision to opt into the justice system. You know, you have that. In, Someone else's problem. You're, you're getting a no, no sit, no lie law going in Everett. So mm-hmm. every little area is starting to do their own on not having it through an ordinance, you know. Uh, not having it versus actually fixing it. Right. So let's just not allow it. The visible stuff that we see, the visible, so all the visible people go from Mercer Island mm-hmm. to downtown Seattle, where it's, there's a tolerance for it, but then that becomes an expense for the city of Seattle. Again, and then that goes back to this whole, I don't want to spend the upfront money, I'd rather pay in the long run, 
because the the now cost is so great and the po- now political cost is so great because it's easier just to shove the the problem under the rug just to 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 get rid of it whether you say you know shipping with the Mercer Island or Everett's doing shipping them off into uh, other cities or it's putting them in hotels without supportive housing that gets it off the streets that gets the the, the chronically homeless mm-hmm. people off the streets and into housing but it doesn't solve the problem and it ultimately comes back. And one last thing, just in terms of like a shot in the arm, you, the federal government's paying for all the shots in the arms that we have. Mm-hmm. Federal government's giving the financial shot in the arm to these local governments in terms of COVID money for the homeless. I mean, just just King County alone, it's come out to $203 million in the recent American Re- Relief Package Act mm-hmm. that's coming to King County to deal with rental assistance, getting uh, people off the street, getting 500 people in the ho- uh, temporary housing, expanding the Soto shelter, building a pallet village down there in Soto, uh, getting off RV lot for 50 RVs. This is all part of the plan with federal money, two or three million dollars. So you're getting a shot in the arm, but then that's not going to last. Yeah, it's just a yeah. one-time thing. Yeah. So, so you really use, you use that for capital as opposed to ongoing expenses, I would think. Well, this is how they're doing it. They're doing it to get immediate people off the street. But again goes back to the chronically homeless argument you need supportive housing which is expensive you need all these other things are expensive it comes down to this jeff this region says we want to put homelessness as a priority on for a lot of different reasons you know either get them off the street or give them housing but when they start seeing the dollars you know that billions of dollars that need to be spent just to get the chronically housing the people who can't afford a house housed that's where they stop you know my moral judgment is you know i want people off the street but my pocketbook says, no, I can't afford that if I'm in the city of Seattle and King County. I think that's the real, the real call here. You want to be in the right, but no one's willing to spend the money that really it's really going to take. Well, we'll have to see where it goes from here. Come on, Matt Markovich. Thank you, as always, for your insights. You're welcome. And when we come back, Republicans all but kill a bipartisan commission to investigate the attack on the U.S. Capitol when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. It's not at all clear what new facts or additional investigation yet another commission could actually lay on top of existing efforts by law enforcement and Congress. That is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, as the Republicans have all but killed a 9-11-style commission to investigate the attacks on the U.S. Capitol earlier this year. Joining me now is Daniel Lippman. He is a reporter for Politico, and while it is not technically dead yet, do we really expect 10 Republican senators to break ranks and join with the Democrats to uh, defeat a filibuster here? Yeah, that does seem pretty unrealistic. McConnell has a good stronghold on his caucus. Uh, and they, you know, there's been a lot of softening in terms of uh, what key moderates who might have voted for this uh, were saying uh, about this issue, where they're kind of indicating that they agree with McConnell uh, and that they are maybes in some ways, uh, in some cases. And, and there just does not seem to be a huge appetite to relitigate this issue or even, uh, you know, have some type of blue ribbon commission to look at this well and and we saw with the negotiations between democrats and republicans particularly over in the house republicans had a number of demands and democrats gave in to each one of those demands and then leadership still backed off of this proposal so what exactly is the republican opposition 
to an independent investigation into the attack on the Capitol? They just don't think it's necessary uh, and that they, you know, don't think that there's a ton of unrevealed facts uh, that could be found out. Uh, It's not like Trump was, uh, had met with key plotters to urge them to attack the Capitol. He did, you know, his speech at the Ellipse is out there for everyone to see and there wasn't a ton of stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, he was kind of transfixed uh, watching TV that day. Um, and so I think uh, privately Republicans are worried that it would make Trump look bad and embarrass him going into 2022, 2024. Uh, and so they don't want the headache of bad publicity for him and Republicans, um, you know, if this commission report was. Uh, bipartisan. And so it seems like the negotiation by Congressman John Katko, a Republican uh, who had been charged with this negotiation by McCarthy, reached a deal with Democrats, uh, was kind of a head faint. Um, it doesn't seem, you know, Trump is against this, and that kind of counts for a lot. Well, and that kind of shows you just how much power President or former President Trump still has within the Republican Party. Is this really still his party or? the rank-and-file Republicans still that afraid of being primaried by someone who's more supportive of President Trump than they are? I think that's still a, uh, a concern, uh, a big concern, because as long as Trump is around, he can kind of make or break Republican candidates. And so there is uh, very little, uh, you know, courage among these Republicans to find uh, it in themselves to say, let's ignore Trump, let's just do uh, what the country wants. And I think, I haven't looked at the polling, but many Americans support these types of uh, commissions. Uh, and and so McCarthy might have to testify, a lot of Republicans are uh, potential witnesses. Uh, and so the fact that they were voting on this, kind of ironic, but what can you do? So what about the Democratic side of things? You know, the Republicans are saying that this is simply just a, a partisan and almost using President Trump's verbiage, a partisan witch hunt uh, still going after the former chief executive. Did it really turn out to be that way? Or were Democrats really trying to pull a, a, a political bait and switch here or no? I'm sure that, you know, it's Washington. So politics is always at the front of people's minds. But um you know, if Democrats were in this spot, maybe they'd be resisting this type of investigation. And so they might be able to understand why Republicans are blocking this. Um, but if you actually think long term, the more that Republicans can expel Trump from the party, the better off the Republican Party will be at expanding their base instead of just relying on a group of diehard Trump supporters. And so Democrats would almost be doing Republicans a favor, but sometimes people can't see their best interests in front of their own eyes. Well, and and you kind of alluded to this earlier, the 2022 midterm elections are not too far off. Uh, How much is this playing into the the politics of of a commission like this? I think Kevin McCarthy is, he really wants to be the House Speaker, doesn't want to be challenged for that job, and thinks that it's within his reach. If Republicans uh, win back the House next year, which looks like it could happen, uh, and so he doesn't want to rock the boat, and they didn't want this commission to drag into 2022 
where you could have a report a month or two before the election and that would make Republicans look bad and hurt their election prospects. All right, Daniel Lipman, reporter for Politico. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. When we come back, additional trouble for the former president as a private citizen when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The New York Attorney General's office has evolved its investigation into former President Trump's company to encompass potential crimes. It is now a criminal investigation. So what does this mean? Well, joining me now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And uh, I guess that simple question to you, what does this mean now that it's a criminal investigation? It really means that the New York Attorney General's office is doubling down on the investigation of Donald Trump to join forces with the Manhattan District Attorney in a criminal investigation for tax fraud. And the idea is, the allegation apparently will be, that the former president president was playing games with the value of his properties. When he would go to a lender trying to get a big loan or to an insurance company for a big policy, he'd puff up the value of the real estate. But when he was talking to the taxing authorities, he would downplay and say, no, they're worth much less. So he would have to pay smaller tax bills. That could translate to tax fraud, and it could translate to jail time for Donald Trump if convicted of that charge. This sounds very familiar. Didn't former President Trump, at least in the past, admit to doing things like this with his properties? Well, yes. What he has said is that, of course, it's not uh, on his watch in terms of the preparation of the, the tax returns. So he will attempt to, to shift the responsibility to others. And, of course, that's common in many large businesses. The, the CEO at the top certainly doesn't all they don't always get their hands dirty in terms of the tax details. But the bottom line is that these charges are very serious and that by teaming up with the Manhattan DA, what you're seeing is two prosecutorial authorities. And of course, these aren't the only potential criminal investigations against the former president. You've got the uh, D.C. attorney general uh, possibly going after the president for inciting that riot on January 6th. And you've got county authorities in Atlanta that may pursue criminal charges regarding the uh, attempt by Donald Trump to have the Secretary of State in Georgia look into the election results and possibly turn them around. How much of this, though, is political? Because that's been the cry from President Trump or former President Trump since the very beginning that he said all of these things are witch hunts. And and of course, we're seeing the exact same response. The mantra by the president is that this is a a witch hunt. And in in defense of the president, of course, he's able to point to the fact that there was a lot of sentiment for concluding that he was guilty of collusion with Russia, and that really wasn't borne out. There was massive sentiment for impeaching the president, not just once, but two times. That process went through, but in each case, he was not convicted. So he has that on his side. The real question is, do the the prosecutorial authorities have the goods? Uh, Will the Southern District of New York, the Manhattan DA, or now the attorney general in New York be able to come up with evidence of tax fraud? If he's guilty of tax fraud as to New York law, he could go to jail for three to 25 years. If he's guilty of federal tax fraud, he's looking at five years in prison per charge, could be multiple charges. So the real question is, is there any there there? And of course, this all has to do with his actions before he was president, right? Because you can't go after someone for their actions as president. You know, it's a complex question. He essentially had immunity so that when he was president, he could not be prosecuted uh, for anything. Uh, He could be impeached and then convicted. But once he's out of office, 
then he's fair game. Of course, going back to the Nixon era, uh, we know that he could have been prosecuted for obstruction of justice. And that's why he needed a pardon from Gerald Ford. And he got it. And, and that, of course, was to Ford's political detriment. Now, looking at, at Trump, it, it all depends, really, on when he committed a, a possible allegation. If he committed tax uh, evasion years ago, the statutes of limitation have probably expired. Sometimes if it's blatant fraud, the statutes don't apply and they're not suspended. But the mere fact that he was president really won't prevent prosecutors from going after him for stuff he allegedly did wrong as president. It wasn't in his capacity, in his official capacity as chief executive. Instead, it would be alleged that he was just acting as Donald Trump businessman filing false tax returns. If you're his defense attorney, what do you tell him to do? Well, first you tell him to say nothing, which is always a challenge because the president uh, really wants to defend himself. And although he doesn't have the Twitter or the Facebook platform right now, he still isn't gagged and he's, he's free to speak. And the lawyerly advice is always say absolutely nothing. Let me do the talking for you, because you never know when you're going to say something that will give something uh, potent to the prosecutors. So that's the fundamental advice that he's going to hear, that if history is any guide, he's going to ignore. All right, ABC's legal analyst, Royal Oaks, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to The Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelet. Thank you for listening and have a good week.